Disrupting the flow of money into coal, gas and oil is critical to limiting the impacts of climate change. Your bank could be investing billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry. Bank Australia is an ethical bank that doesn't fund harmful industries. Join us and over 180,000 Australians who have made the switch. Search Bank Australia Solutions. My name is Kate Ashmore and I'm a proud Jar Jar Wurrung person. Today's episode of The Cool Down was recorded on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal lands of the Aura Nation. Together with Footy for Climate, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. Footy comes from Mangrook, a First Nations game that has been played on these lands, which have been protected and nurtured by Australia's first people for tens of thousands of years. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging for their continued connection to the land, water and culture, and look to their guidance and knowledge as we work towards a more sustainable future. We acknowledge the sovereignty was never ceded. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome back to another episode of The Cooldown by Footy for Climate, brought to you by Bank Australia. I'm Nick Barr, and in this week's episode, focused on women and climate, I sit down with Grace Vegasana, Climate and Racial Justice Director at AYCC, Emma Pocock, founder and CEO of Frontrunners, and Sam Moston, Chief Executive Women President and Climate Change and Gender Equity Advocate. You're listening to the extended edit of my chat with Grace. The Cooldown is brought to you by Bank Australia. Well, I'm really excited to introduce our first guest to episode six of The Cooldown today, Grace Vegasana. Grace is a 23-year-old woman of colour fighting for climate, economic and racial justice at the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, or AYCC. She sits on the board of directors at the Foundation for Young Australians, Australian Conservation Foundation and Sweltering Cities, and has just completed a double degree of environmental and climate science and law at Macquarie University. She's also a proud Giants fan, so I'm stoked to have a fellow Giant on the show. Grace, welcome to The Cooldown. It's a pleasure to be here. You were born in Botswana in Southern Africa, where you lived until the age of three with your parents and two older sisters before making the move to Australia, landing in Greater Western Sydney. Do you have any memories of those early years before making the move to Australia? I do. Um, So my family grew up on the edge of a copper and nickel mine in uh, Francistown, which is in northern Botswana. So on the edge of the savannah, a really beautiful area, you could go like 15 minutes drive and see like what people consider to be the safari. And so it's really lucky to grow up in such a beautiful area, but also really quite uh, interesting to see the impacts of extraction and what colonisation looks like on such a beautiful landscape in really early stages of my life. Um, and so have really great memories of the people in the community and the beautiful life that we lived, but also clear memories of being told not to drink the drinking water mm-hmm. in the river or making sure that we didn't eat the fish that were fished from uh, the river that ran through town because of the pollution from the copper and nickel mine. And so, yeah, there's this clear like contrast between this incredible bit of the world that has the highest biodiversity index in the world uh, versus the people who actually live there and live off the land not Mm. being able to actually enjoy that at all. Yeah, absolutely. And why did your parents decide to make the move um, to Greater Western Sydney and what was life like growing up in Greater Western Sydney as a young kid from Botswana? 
Yeah. So my parents decided to move from Botswana mainly through education opportunities and actually uh, what was actually offered to young women who were growing up in a country where there was one university, there was very limited degrees. If we did want to go to university, we would go down to South Africa where it was still dealing with a lot of the post-apartheid era where Mm. my parents had grown up during that, had that stamped on their passport um, when they had to enter South Africa. And so They didn't want to raise another generation going Mm -hmm. through a lot of that racial trauma that existed. And so we actually moved into Greater Western Sydney, which is the most multicultural spot uh, on the continent and really lucky to have great memories of growing up with such a hugely diverse and multicultural community that really loves and supports each other. I think that's really the binding glue of what brings Western Sydney together. Growing up in Greater Western Sydney, you also deal with the extreme impacts of heat, bushfires, floods, um, and also people just grappling with the impacts of being from a low socioeconomic area um, and also dealing with some of the like repercussions that follow on from there, whether that's family violence or not being able to have the right shoes for school and not be able to afford the right gear for playing sport and dealing with the like everyday impacts of not growing up wealthy. And so, yeah, there's this huge contrast of who the community is and the glue that binds us all um, and makes us Western Sydney, but there's also the clear impacts from the external world that make it so hard to be from Western Sydney too. Um And yeah, I think growing up in Western Sydney, I really saw the impacts of uh, extreme heat in my own life, whether that was uh, actually today driving from Western Sydney to where we're recording this in the east of Sydney, um, where when I left my house, it was 38 degrees. I think it's like 28 here, uh, which is quite a stark difference for about a 30 minute drive. And so, yeah, there's like a clear stark difference between Western Sydney and how the urban heat island effect is actually impacting the heat sink that exists in Western Sydney. And so, yeah, there's a lot of different factors that make up who Western Sydney is. But uh, I think characterization is like multicultural, hugely diverse, beautiful, like First Nations communities, Mm -hmm. um, but also the marring impacts of heat and fires and floods. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing that more and more, as as we all know. Um, Grace, you were a keen cricketer growing up, as sport <laughs> I've been told and I've, I've heard. Um, has sport always been an important part of your life growing up in Western Sydney? Absolutely. I think there's definitely an intersection between class, race and sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my parents... Um, I used to run the post office down in Lumia in far, far south western Sydney, uh, which is not a particularly privileged area by any means. It's actually quite disadvantaged. Um, and a lot of the people um, are from housing commission communities um, and just don't have a lot of excess wealth. But what they do have is a real pride in the West Tigers, <laughs> uh, which is literally on my keys right now. I like to rep it to this day. <laughs> and I clearly remember 2005 when there was a lot of... Um, economic struggle that was happening but as per usual everyone shows up to the post office to like pay their bills as you used to do in 2005 mm-hmm. before FPOS really was a thing and so my parents were seeing like the real intersection of the community but backing this team that was actually doing really well in the NRL and then when they finally won the grand premiership it was like the economic like prosperity that boosted through the region actually changed people's lives really tangibly mm. whether that was my 
parents' post office and people actually being able to afford memorabilia and like wanting to be a part of the community more and more uh, and moving away from the isolation that they often felt with staying inside, watching the footy to actually showing up to the ground, meeting the players, enjoying each other's company out in the pub and sort of like the economic that flow, the economics that flows through that after a mm. win like that and so I think I saw that really early on and I was five and it was the last win we've had in <laughs> my entire life uh, probably will continue to be the only win I see um, but I think like that really rooted in me like the need for like actually a community tied to a sport and sporting team and what that represents for a community too. Yeah absolutely and now you mentioned the West Tigers but I know you've had a a huge cricket career, particularly in your youth. Tell us about that. What got you into cricket and did you love it growing up? I did. I think cricket is very much a thing that's tied to a lot of um, Asian cultures. Um, I think my parents and grandparents are from India and so they obviously have that huge sporting background of everyone being parked in front of the Boxing Day test. Yeah. Uh, the test cricket constantly being on in the background as like background noise instead of anything else you ever heard. Like the news would never be on. It would always be the cricket. <laughs> uh, and so I grew up with like legends like Ricky Ponting and Brett Lee and all of these plays like constantly being at the forefront of my mind and how I conceived the world as well and mm -hmm. those values that kind of shaped me. But I think, yeah, cricket has always been a part of my family and the community that I've been a part of. And I think in a lot of ways, it's the thing that still draws me to family. Like mm. it's still the thing that we show up to go to matches together. We take out like my nephews and nieces off to the big bash. Like yep. it's still the thing that is a shared language, regardless of language barriers that have developed over time with my grandparents or um, literally my nephew not being able to speak physically, but he can <laughs> still knows when someone's yep. out. Yep. And so, yeah, it's still like the shared language that really brings us together. Yeah, that's awesome. And now you mentioned some of those legends of, of cricket and they were meant, the two, the two people you mentioned. Obviously you were playing cricket, but what were some of the obstacles that you faced as a young girl wanting to play sport and, and cricket growing up in Greater Western Sydney? Yeah, well, that's exactly it. It was that there was a clear lack in the investment in women's sport. Um, and I remember being in primary school and I remember asking my year six, uh, like head of sport, to start a women's cricket team for the girls because there was never one. And he outright was like, no, there's no resources for that. And I was like, but there's kids, there's teachers, there's the same pitch, like we've got the resources surely we can start a team for women. And he was like, no, I don't want to see that in my lifetime. And I was like, oh, okay, I've got that. And here we are, yes, 2023. Here we are. <laughs> um, yeah, they ended up making me join the men's team. Uh, but I wasn't allowed to participate in any competitions because that was apparently against the rules. But I was better than most of them anyways. It's fine. Um but yeah, I remember the same problem having, happening when I was in high school and we had the same situation where they were like, there's simply just no resourcing for women's sport, mm -hmm. um, despite it being effectively the same stuff that all of the men were using and they were happy for us to use it too. Mm. And so there was this clear stark difference in the accessibility of sport, but also the willingness of people in charge wanting to actually invest in the things that people were asking for, like gathering a team who were all ready to play, but just not able to actually get out there and do the things that we wanted to do and see in our lives because the forces that be were preventing it really actively. 
Well, clearly Grace Alita from a very young age asking if you could play cricket. And um, look, I hope that maybe you even are now. Who knows? <laughs> There's a lot more opportunity, but we've obviously got a long way to go. But great, great little story of you playing cricket. Um, Greater Western Sydney is obviously a very climate-affected region. Can you tell us why? And also about that day that you were walking to cricket training, and I think it was nearly 50 degrees, and I believe something happened with your shoes. They did. Um, So for a bit of background context, Greater Western Sydney is a huge area. It stretches inland from up to Newcastle, down to Wollongong, out to Lithgow. It's a huge, huge area. Um, It hosts almost 3 million people, which is like more than half of Sydney's population. Uh, It's hugely multicultural, hugely diverse. There's over 200 languages spoken at home in Western Sydney. Uh, It's like got a huge First Nations population. It's got a huge range of economic um, kind of prosperity within its residents, but for the majority, it's like low to middle income families. Western Sydney sits under an urban heat island effect where the valley causes a lack of sea and coastal breezes coming in from the east and no breezes coming in from the mountains on the west. And so it's caught and like all of this heat just like builds up and builds up and builds up into this huge sweltering city of just people sweating it out. There's a huge lack of colonial infrastructure design, whether that's a lack of trees um, that were built. Um, Lots of the waterways have been shut off, so there's no cooling breezes from the waterways Mm. either. And so it's just like a huge pot of people who are all sweating it out on days like this where it's 38 degrees in the west and 28 in the east. Uh, And there's a clear 10 10 degree difference between the east and the west on any good day. Mm. And so, yeah, Western Sydney acts as this sink for the rest of Sydney. It also acts as a bushfire and flood sacrifice zone. So the fires don't actually reach the city because residents of West Residents of Western Sydney uh, actually prevent the fires from reaching Sydney. And so mm. you'll never really see the fires hit the city of Sydney or the inner west because the residents of Western Sydney kind of act as a physical barricade for the rest of the city, uh, literally encircling it so that you will never actually see some of those major impacts reaching uh, the very affluent families in mm. West in the very affluent families in Sydney. Um And so this heat is really, really bad. I think like you as a Giants player would actually know and feel it, whether you're training on grounds that have zero tree coverage and are just heat sinks. Um, You'll see it in everyday people who are construction workers working outside in 50 degree heat. And I remember growing up when I was in primary school and there was a time that I was walking home from school and I was wearing my black like uniform shoes from Kmart as you do. Uh, And I was carrying my cricket uh, kit on my back walking home from school. And I remember feeling like so sluggish and I was like, it's because it's 48 degrees. Like that's truly the reason that I feel so tired. But I kept walking and I was like, no, like this is harder to walk than normal. And then I realized that my shoes were melting onto the tarmac as I was actually walking home. And I physically like wasn't able to take them off because I would burn the soles of my feet. And the alternative was to have really, really sticky shoes that were melting <laughs> as I was walking. And so I made my way home eventually and my shoes had like completely melted down the sole. It was like the traction had just completely gone. Um, but there was no other option. Like I had to get home yeah. in some way. And so, yeah, I think I'm definitely not the only person who has this story. I think there are a lot of kids who grow up in Western Sydney where 
for absolutely decades there was just no air conditioning in classrooms. There mm. was no real respite from the heat because there's no trees. Um, there's no waterways that they can just jump in. Um, there's no real way of getting out of the heat mm. particularly and you really see that during summers that absolutely cook the residents that exist. Yeah. Look, you've had so many different, I guess, people and, and stories that might have contributed to you starting to think about climate change, but do you think this shoes story was your first sort of climate mo- moment or was there something else or someone else that I guess made you start to think, I, I really want to start working in this space? Yeah, I think there was a lot of moments, but I think the direct impacts of feeling the heat mm. are such a key like tipping point to actually getting involved and wanting to do something because you feel it really tangibly. You hear stories of your neighbours dying when it's really hot and they can't actually like deal with the heat, whether they're elderly or they're like left in isolation or they can't turn on their fans or air conditioning because the power bills are getting so high. Mm. And so I think these key moments in everyday life that you think are really normal and you internalise as a kid, um, I think they really compounded for me. Like I remember sitting on the train one day and my family were taking a trip out to the um, – to the beaches and we were sitting on this train and we were like watching these suburbs go by and it was such a stark difference between the people who live in Western Sydney and the houses that they have and um, the dogs that they have too, actually. Um, I feel like in Western Sydney, people often have like their guard dogs that protect property and themselves. And then I remember going to Bondi and there was like these little fluffy rat looking dogs and I was like, (laughs) why? What purpose are they serving? Like, what, what is, what are these for? I've just never experienced this before. Um, very interesting culture shock within 37 kilometers of my house. Yeah. Um, but I think it was just like these stark differences between Sydney and Western Sydney and how different the residents are and their experiences of climate change and of the changing world that we're living in and of colonial architecture and design um, that I think really just got me straight involved. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think your time at school with your school teachers, do you think that they, is this something that they spoke about when you were at school growing up? Yeah. So I was the last real generation that didn't have climate change in the education system. So I went through all 13 years without climate change being really mentioned. I think Mm. greenhouse gases were mentioned once when I was in year nine and that was the extent of it. Mm. And the year after I finished high school, um, the school strikes had started and so there was political consciousness starting to build in young people. Um, But there was, yeah, there was no real clear education system reform that was happening in my time. But I had really great teachers who kind of saw that I was interested in seeing these patterns in the world and really encouraged me to actually dig a little deeper and actually understand like the impacts of colonial design, understanding the suburb that I was from and the history of the name Blacktown and Mm. what that actually meant to um, have so many residents actually from multicultural and First Nations backgrounds living in a place called Blacktown, which takes from the name Blackstown and it used mm. to be effectively a concentration camp for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so I think they yeah, really encouraged me to dig a little deep and you really need the people in your life who are older and have the perspective of seeing things from the systemic point of view to actually be like, you're a 16 year old go and figure it out like you have the potential to actually see things and see the world that you're living in from a different way and so very grateful to my teachers at school too. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned that, you know, you started thinking a lot about this stuff when you were sort of in your teens and your teachers had a big influence on this as well. You started at the AYCC at the age of 17 as a volunteer. What drew you to this particular organisation? Yeah, I think um, I owe a lot of my growing up in the climate movement story to the Australian New Climate Coalition. I think I'm very grateful to have joined a training camp the week I finished HSC. Um, and just to be surrounded in this room full of young people who saw the same experiences that I was seeing and put names to it, um, mm. whether they were like, yeah, like you're not, you're not gaslighting yourself. You're actually seeing these patterns in the world that actually intentionally exist and have been designed. And I clearly remember like a few key quotes from that training camp. One was that the world and the system isn't actually broken. It's built like this. Mm. And I remember sitting there and being like from Western Sydney, I think I was one of the only young people of colour in the room and being like, yeah, like the system is actually built like this and I wasn't imagining any of this and I wasn't encouraged to like pretend like this didn't exist. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, I had a really great moment where they were talking about climate refugees and what that meant like uh, in our current context in the world. And they were talking about it in some abstract terms. But I remember sitting there and having, I would say, like my light bulb moment of realising that my family would have been climate refugees um, mm. back in Botswana if we hadn't left when we ha- would have, uh, whether that was from desertification and people being forced off their land Um because the animals were migrating to cooler areas. They weren't able to survive. Therefore, the people aren't able to survive off that land and the regeneration cycle that exists within that. Um, All of the water pollution, all of the extraction pollution, all of the dust in the air that makes it so hard to breathe. Um, So I think there was a real light bulb moment, but it was really just like being a room full of people for the first time in my life that Mm. actually saw these issues as they existed and didn't pretend like they didn't exist or didn't try to hide behind empty promises of we can fix this stuff, but was actually like, we're going to tackle this and this has names and we're going to be a part of a community that actually strives to create change in the space. Well, you're a very, very valued member and six years on, you're now the Climate and Racial Justice Director there. Can you tell us a little bit about this role and what your purpose is with within AYCC? Yeah, um, my purpose is basically to help and support uh, the young people of colour that exist within the climate movement and those that don't exist yet. Um, I think the climate movement has historically been very much dominated by white narratives and white waves of storytelling and actually seeing the world and um, positioning itself in issues, whether that's through conservation lenses or um actually forcing people uh, who are looking after their country off their country so that we can actually keep those spaces as they currently exist as opposed to being able to adapt um, using First Nations knowledges um, to the changing world. And so, yeah, really supporting young people of colour to be able to organise into their communities, really change the narrative that exists of um, whether that's changing literally the use of fossil fuels and that terminology that just doesn't translate into other languages, quite literally doesn't translate Mm -hmm. um, into more accessible language and making sure that the people such as in Western Sydney from multicultural communities can actually understand what is happening in their world and that these changes are happening and what they can do about it. Um, 
Yeah, but I think it's very much just like focused on actually building the knowledge and the experience and the leadership within young people of colour within the climate movement, which then shifts the broader narrative to a place that's actually more accessible and more meaningful for multicultural communities like my own. We've got a very important role, Grace, and they're very lucky to have you and we're very lucky to have you here today. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Cooldown, a footy for climate podcast. The Cooldown is produced by Sam Dalton and audio is edited by Darcy Parkinson from Producey. Episode research is done by me, Jasper Pittard and Aloise Witkowski.